Book Three, Part Five of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume One, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Book Three, Part Five, Paragraphs Eighty through One Hundred and One. After the tumult quieted down, and five days passed, the rebels against the Magi held a council on the whole state of affairs, at which sentiments were uttered which to some Greeks seem incredible, but there is no doubt that they were spoken. Otanes was for turning the government over to the Persian people. It seems to me, he said, that there can no longer be a single sovereign over us, for that is not pleasant or good. You saw the insolence of Cambyses, how far it went, and you had your share of the insolence of the Magis. How can monarchy be a fit thing, when the ruler can do what he wants with impunity? Give this power to the best man on earth, and it would stir him to unaccustomed thoughts. Insolence is created in him by the good things to hand, while from birth envy is rooted in man. Acquiring the two, he possesses complete evil, for being satiated he does many reckless things, some from insolence, some from envy. And yet an absolute ruler ought to be free of envy, having all good things, but he becomes the opposite of this towards his citizens. He envies the best who thrive and live, and is pleased by the worst of his fellows, and he is the best confidant of slander. Of all men he is the most inconsistent, for if you admire him modestly he is angry that you do not give him excessive attention, but if he gives him excessive attention he is angry because one is a flatterer. But I have yet worse to say of him than that. He upsets the ancestral ways, and rapes women, and kills indiscriminately. But the rule of the multitude has in the first place the loveliest name of all, equality, and does in the second place none of the things that a monarch does. It determines offices by lot, and holds power accountable, and conducts all deliberating publicly. Therefore I give my opinion that we make an end of monarchy, and exalt the multitude, for all things are possible for the majority. Such was the judgment of Otanes, but Megabizus urged that they resort to oligarchy. I agree, said he, with all that Otanes says against the rule of one, but when he tells you to give the power to the multitude, his judgment strays from the best. Nothing is more foolish and violent than a useless mob. For men fleeing the insolence of a tyrant to fall victim to the insolence of the unguided populace is by no means to be tolerated. Whatever the one does, he does with knowledge. But for the other, knowledge is impossible. How can they have knowledge who have not learned or seen for themselves what is best, but always rush headlong and drive blindly onward like a river in flood? Let those like democracy who wish ill to Persia, but let us choose a group of the best men and invest those with the power." for we ourselves shall be among them, and among the best men it is likely that there will be the best counsels. Such was the judgment of Megabysus. Darius was the third to express his opinion. It seems to me, he said, that Megabysus speaks well concerning democracy, but not concerning oligarchy. For if the three are proposed, and all are at their best for the sake of argument, the best democracy and oligarchy and monarchy, I hold that monarchy is by far the most excellent, one could describe nothing better than the rule of the one best man. Using the best judgment, he will govern the multitude with perfect wisdom, and best conceal plans made for the defeat of enemies. But in an oligarchy, the desire of many to do the state good service often produces bitter hate among them, 
for, because each one wishes to be first, and to make his opinions prevail, violent hate is the outcome, from which comes faction, and from faction killing, and from killing it reverts to monarchy, and by this is shown how much better monarchy is. Then again, when the people rule, it is impossible that wickedness will not occur, and when wickedness towards the state occurs, hatred does not result among the wicked, but strong alliances, for those that want to do the state harm conspire to do it together. This goes on until one of the people rises to stop such men. He, therefore, becomes the people's idol, and being their idol is made their monarch, and thus he also proves that monarchy is best. But, to conclude the whole matter in one word, tell me, where did freedom come from for us, and who gave it, from the people, or an oligarchy, or a single ruler? I believe, therefore, that we who were liberated through one man should maintain such a government, and, besides this, that we should not alter our ancestral ways that are good, that would not be better. Having to choose between these three options, four of the seven men preferred the last. Then Otanes, whose proposal to give the Persians equality was defeated, spoke thus among them all. Fellow partisans, it is plain that one of us must be made king, whether by lot, or entrusted with the office by the choice of the Persians, or in some other way, but I shall not compete with you. I desire neither to rule nor to be ruled, but if I waive my claim to be king, I make this condition, that neither I nor any of my descendants shall be subject to any one of you. To these terms the six others agreed. Otanes took no part in the contest, but stood aside, and to this day his house, and no other in Persia, remains free, and is ruled only so far as it is willing to be, so long as it does not transgress Persian law. The rest of the seven then considered what was the fairest way of making a king, and they decided that if another of the seven than Otanes should gain the royal power, that Otanes and his descendants should receive a yearly gift of Median clothing, and everything else that the Persians hold most valuable. The reason for this decision was that it was he who had first planned the matter and assembled the conspirators. For Otanes, then, they chose this particular honour, but with regard to all of them they decreed that any one of the seven should, if he wished, enter the king's palace unannounced, except when the king was sleeping with a woman, and that the king should be forbidden to take a wife except from the households of the conspirators. As for the making of a king, they decided that he should be elected, whose horse, after they were all in their saddles in the suburb of the city, should first be heard to neigh at sunrise. Now, Darius had a clever groom, whose name was Oberes. When the council broke up, Darius said to him, Oberes, we have resolved to do as follows about the kingship. He shall be elected whose horse, after we are all mounted on our horses in the suburb of the city, neighs first at sunrise. Now, if you have any cunning, figure out how we, and no one else, can win this prize. Master, Oberes answered, if this is to determine whether you become king or not, be confident for this reason, and have an easy mind, for no one else shall be king before you. Such are the tricks I have. Then, said Darius, if you have any trick such as you say, use it, and don't put it off, for to-morrow is the day of decision. When Oberes heard that, he did as follows. At nightfall he brought one of the mares which Darius's horse particularly favoured, and tethered her in the suburb of the city. Then, bringing Darius's horse, he repeatedly led him near the horse, bumping against the mare, and at last let the horse mount. At dawn of the day the six came on horseback, as they had agreed. 
As they rode out through the suburb and came to the place where the mare had been tethered in the past night, Darius's horse trotted forward and whinnied, and as he did so there came lightning and thunder out of a clear sky. These signs given to Darius were thought to be foreordained, and made his election perfect. His companions leapt from their horses and bowed to him. Some say that this was Oberus's plan, but there is another story in Persia besides this, that he rubbed this mare's vulva with his hand, which he then kept inside his clothing until the six were about to let go their horses at sunrise, when he took his hand out and held it to the nostrils of Darius's horse, which at once snorted and whinnied. So Darius, son of Histophus, was made king, and the whole of Asia, which Cyrus first and Cambyses after him had conquered, was subject to him. Except the Arabians, these did not yield as slaves of the Persians, but were united to them by friendship, having given Cambyses passage into Egypt, which the Persians could not enter without the consent of the Arabians. Darius took wives from the noblest houses of Persia, marrying Cyrus's daughters Atossa and Artistone. Atossa had been wife of her brother Cambyses, and afterward of the Magus. Aristone was a virgin. He also married a daughter of Cyrus's son Smerdis, whose name was Parmis, and the daughter of Otanes, who had discovered the truth about the Magus, and everything was full of his power. First he made and set up a carved stone, upon which was cut the figure of a horseman, with this inscription, Darius, son of Histophus, aided by the excellence of his horse, here followed the horse's name, and of Oberus his groom, got possession of the kingdom of Persia. Having done these things in Persia, he divided his dominions into twenty provinces, which they call Stratopes, and having divided his dominions and appointed governors, he instructed each people to pay him tribute, consolidating neighboring peoples and distributing outlying peoples among different provinces, passing over those adjoining. I will now show how he divided his provinces and the tributes which were paid him yearly. Those that paid in silver were required to render the weight of a Babylonian talent, those that paid in gold of a Euboic talent, the Babylonian talent being equal to seventy-eight Euboic minae. In the reigns of Cyrus and Cambyses after him there was no fixed tribute, but payment was made in gifts. It is because of this fixing of tribute, and other similar ordinances, that the Persians called Darius the merchant, Cambyses the master, and Cyrus the father, for Darius made petty profit out of everything, Cambyses was harsh and arrogant, Cyrus was merciful and always worked for their well-being. The Ionians, Magnesians of Asia, Aeolians, Carians, Lycians, Millians, and Pamphylians, on whom Darius laid one joint tribute, paid a revenue of four hundred talents of silver. This was established as his first province. The Mycians, Lydians, Lasonians, Cabalians, and Hittenians paid five hundred talents. This was the second province. The third comprised the Hellespontians on the right of the entrance of the Straits, the Phrygians, Thracians of Asia, Paphlagonians, Myriandinians, and Syrians. These paid three hundred and sixty talents of tribute. The fourth province was Cilicia. This rendered three hundred and sixty white horses, one for each day in the year, and five hundred talents of silver. A hundred and forty of these were expended on the horsemen who were the guard of Cilicia. The three hundred and sixty that remained were paid to Darius. The fifth province was the country, except the part belonging to the Arabians, which paid no tribute. Between Pisidian, a city founded on the Cilician and Syrian border, by Amphilochus, son of Amphiaris, and Egypt, 
This paid three hundred and fifty talents. In this province was all Phoenicia, and the part of Syria called Palestine, and Cyprus. The sixth province was Egypt, and the neighboring parts of Libya, and Cyrene and Barca, all of which were included in the province of Egypt. From here came seven hundred talents, besides the income in silver from the fish of the lake Moris, besides that silver and the assessment of grain that was given also, seven hundred talents were paid, for a hundred and twenty thousand bushels of grain were assigned to the Persians quartered at the white wall of Memphis and their allies. The Satagide, Ganderi, Dadike, and Aparete paid together a hundred and seventy talents. This was the seventh province, the eighth was Susa and the rest of the Sicilian country, paying three hundred talents. From Babylon and the rest of Assyria came to Darius a thousand talents of silver and five hundred castrated boys. This was the ninth province, Ecbatana and the rest of Medea, with the Paracanians and Orthocorybantians, paid four hundred and fifty talents, and was the tenth province. The eleventh comprised the Caspii, Pasakai, Pantimathi, and Derite, paying jointly two hundred. The twelfth, the Batrians, as far as the land of the Egli, these paid three hundred and sixty. The thirteenth, the Pactiac country, and Armenia, and the lands adjoining as far as the Euxine Sea, these paid four hundred. The fourteenth province was made up of the Sagarti, Seranges, Thamanea, Utki, Missi, and the inhabitants of those islands of the southern sea, on which the king settles the so-called displaced people. These together paid a tribute of six hundred talents. The Sakai and Caspii were the fifteenth, paying two hundred and fifty. The Parthians, Chorasmians, Sogdi, and Eri were the sixteenth, paying three hundred. The Perikanii and the Ethiopians of Asia, the seventeenth, paid four hundred. The Matieni, Saspiri, and Alorodii were the eighteenth, and two hundred talents were the appointed tribute. The Mashi, Tiberini, Macrones, Masinoki, and Maris, the nineteenth province, were ordered to pay three hundred. The Indians made up the twentieth province. These are more in number than any nation of which we know, and they paid a greater tribute than any other province, namely three hundred and sixty talents of gold dust. Now, if these Babylonian silver talents be calculated in Euboic money, the sum is seen to be nine thousand eight hundred and eighty Euboic talents, and the gold coin, being thirteen times the value of the silver, the gold dust is found to be worth four thousand six hundred and eighty Euboic talents. Therefore it is seen by adding together all that Darius collected, a yearly tribute of fourteen thousand five hundred and sixty talents. I take no account of figures less than ten. This was Darius's revenue from Asia and a few parts of Libya. But as time went on he drew tribute also from the islands and the dwellers in Europe, as far as Thessaly. The tribute is stored by the king in this fashion. He melts it down and pours it into earthen vessels. When the vessel is full he breaks the earthenware away, and when he needs money coins as much as serves his purpose. These were the governments and appointments of tribute. The Persian country is the only one which I have not recorded as tributary, for the Persians live free from all taxes. As for those on whom no tribute was laid, but who rendered gifts instead, they were firstly the Ethiopians nearest to Egypt, whom Cambyses conquered in his march towards the long-lived Ethiopians, and also those who dwell about the holy city Nisa, where Dionysus is the god of their festivals. 
These Ethiopians and their neighbors use the same seed as the Indian Kalantai, and they live underground. These together brought every year, and still bring, a gift of two shonixes of unrefined gold, two hundred blocks of ebony, five Ethiopian boys, and twenty great elephant's tusks. Gifts were also required of the Colchians and their neighbors as far as the Caucasus Mountains, which is as far as the Persian rule reaches, the country north of the Caucasus paying no regard to the Persians. These were rendered every four years, and are still rendered, namely, a hundred boys and as many maids. The Arabians rendered a thousand talents weight of frankincense yearly. Such were the gifts of these peoples to the king, besides the tribute. All this abundance of gold, from which the Indians send the aforementioned gold dust to the king, they obtain in the following way. To the east of the Indian country is sand. Of all the people of Asia whom we know, even those about whom something is said with precision, the Indians dwell nearest to the dawn and the rising sun, for on the eastern side of India all is desolate because of the sand. There are many Indian nations, none speaking the same language. Some of them are nomads, some not. Some dwell in the river marshes and live on raw fish, which they catch from reed boats. Each boat is made from one joint of reed. These Indians wear clothes of bulrushes. They mow and cut these from the river, then weave them crosswise like a mat, and wear them like a breastplate. Other Indians, to the east of these, are nomads and eat raw flesh. They are called patier. It is said to be their custom that when any one of their fellows, whether man or woman, is sick, a man's closest friends kill him, saying that if wanted by disease he will be lost to them as meat, though he denies that he is sick, they will not believe him, but kill and eat him. When a woman is sick, she is put to death like the men by the women who are her closest acquaintances. As for one that has come to old age, they sacrificed him and feast on his flesh, but not many reach this reckoning, for before that every one who falls ill they kill. There are other Indians, again, who kill no living creature, nor plant anything, nor are accustomed to have houses. They eat grass, and they have a grain growing naturally from the earth in its husk, about the size of a millet seed, which they gather with the husk and boil and eat. When any one of them falls sick, he goes into the desert and lies there, and no one notices whether he is sick or dies. These Indians, whom I have described, have intercourse openly like cattle. They are all black-skinned like Ethiopians. Their semen, too, which they ejaculate into the women, is not white like other men's, but black like their skin, and resembles in this respect that of the Ethiopians. These Indians dwell far away from the Persians southwards, and were not subjects of King Darius. End of Book 3, Part 5